Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. Hats. Brendo, how are you? I'm well. Um, are you expecting somebody to say something? I was thought you was waiting for something from you. No, I got nothing. Have you heard of the butterfly effect? The movie. What well, the actual phenomenon? Um, yes. Do you understand what it is? You, tell the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you change? Oh, are you trying to fucking no, set no, me no, up? No, 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 no. Yeah, no, 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 you know, things that happen all over the place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. yeah. Well, did I get it wrong? Yeah, well, that, yeah. I had no idea, quite honestly. Fuck have up. you heard of the Dunworth effect? <laughs> What's the Dunworth effect? It's when... You've never heard of the Dunworth effect? Mm. Right, so the Dunworth effect is when um, you have this really sort of shoddy podcast. Um, you rock up for a year and a half talking to lovely people, but, you know, make no impact every, anywhere. No. And then along comes a Dunworth. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> hi, hi, Peter. Hi, boys. How are we? We're we're very good. well, mate. We're good. Um, you were very popular, Pete. So we thought we'd get you back. Um, just Beautiful. purely for purely selfish reasons. Nothing to do with listeners. Nothing to do with you. It's all about us. Yeah. Um, well, I think last time oh, I had to leave early for some reason, and you guys kept. Oh yeah, we did actually, yeah, we for did. like another three hours or something stupid. <laughs> um. Yeah, you, yeah, so um, for the benefit of anybody who didn't catch that one, we had, um, we, we'll let you introduce yourself in a second, Pete, but um, we had Pete Dunworth on um, a few episodes ago, I think it was episode 70, um, to talk about um, high net worth individuals and what they think of Bitcoin. Mm. Super popular. It went better than any of our pods have done before. Um, I'm really pleased. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I'm really pleased it did. Because I, th- I actually wasn't sure it was going to, to be honest. Nothing to do with UP, just in terms of I, was, I wasn't sure whether the topic would resonate with people, but it clearly did. Mm. Um, and it's gone nuts. So thank you for that. Um, but we've got you back to... To, um, to boost our numbers to again. To boost our numbers again, <laughs> yeah. But we're going to go a different way this time. So um, first of all, we'll talk about that in a second. But can you, for anybody who didn't listen to the last one, you give a brief summary of yourself and what you do. Um, and then we'll talk about what we're going to talk about. Is that cool? Wonderful. Well, firstly, thank you for having me back. It was a... Delight spending time with you last time, and I'm thrilled the the podcast was well received. It's you don't really know how that's going to go, so it's mm. always uh, uh, it's a blessing to hear that it went well. So well done. The um, a, a little bit about myself. I, I run a, a family office in Sydney. We look after a small number of high net worth families. We basically help them make better investment decisions. We help reduce their risks. We help find them better investments and and hopefully outperform the market. And we happen to have a, I guess, a, a pretty good understanding from an investment perspective of of what 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 the opportunity is with Bitcoin. It's personally it's my favorite asset. I absolutely love that asset. And uh, we also look after maybe between 30 and 40 uh, small smaller clients um solely for their for their Bitcoin custody and advice. So we um we're a very small shop. We look after a small number of clients. Absolutely love our clients and want to uh, help them succeed financially. And that's fundamentally what my role is. But it's very much a personal relationship, a one-to-one thing. You know the people. You've, you've, I don't think you've ever had a customer leave. So is that kind of a business, right? Exactly. So we we 
don't ironically we don't have a website this is a constant back and forth with my business partner I'm like we should probably get a website she's like Peter I don't think we need a website like we've done okay for eight years without one do we really need one now I'm like "Ah, that's a fair point right so if we we typically you know eyeball all of our clients or they're referred to us from existing clients so it's a it's a really fortunate position to be in and literally all of our clients are just wonderful people I'm I feel very blessed to to do what I do so can I ask why why do you call it a family office? Is that the general term for kind of looking after, uh, you know, trust funds or, or families' investments generally? Or like, what, what's the deal with that? Yep. Typically, um, I guess it's called a family office. It's, it's probably a, a further extension of high net worth clients. High net worth clients are typically revolve around the individual and a, a family office revolves around the family. It's maybe a little bit more complicated, a little bit more hands-on. There might be... Um, some different type of work that gets done on a family level rather than a an individual level. Typically, looking after high net worth clients, you, you're just doing investment advice. But when you when you're running a multifamily office, um, there's probably a much deeper relationship across a number of other facets. So, um, one of the things we're going to get onto and talk about tonight is estate planning protocols. So, or or Bitcoin estate planning protocols and how that works um, um, across all assets. But that's one of the one of the key outcomes we try and drive for for clients that maybe some other financial advisors or investment advisors don't really pay attention to. But for us, we're in the business of basically shoring up intergenerational wealth and making, I guess, smarter investment decisions with their money, helping clients reduce risk. And then part of that is making sure that we have an understanding of what sort of um, legal structures that they're working with on on a personal or a family level and then how to best use those structures to ensure i guess a smooth transition of of generational wealth gotcha um yeah so i think we covered this last time but it's it's really along the lines of the first priority for you and your clients is preservation of wealth not um, absolutely not necessarily the gains to the moon all that kind of stuff the first the first the first port of call was preservation. Yeah, return off capital, not return on capital is yeah. paramount. Yes, that's that's what everyone wants. They want return of capital, and typically we're working with sums that are you know, generational wealth in itself. So the first goal is preservation, and then the second goal is to get a return on that if there's a suitable investment. And this is where I've got to say, in light of what's happened in the last well, in the last week, with everything that's gone on in the US, the US banking sector, and how much trouble bonds are causing, I've got to say I'm absolutely delighted to say that we don't have any bonds in any of our portfolios, and we haven't for a long, long time because we understood that that represented a <clears throat> potentially a systemic risk. And luckily, I'm on the right side of that transaction right now. So, so did you have clients that would be pushing you? To look at bonds and you've had to say no for whatever reason or yeah fortunately for us uh, our clients are very receptive to what our suggestions are so we we outline and we've got fairly strong opinions um, my business partner juliet and i um, we we don't I, I think we express a clear and and clearly communicate what our views are on certain asset classes and what the problems are with it and we don't really get a lot of pushback on that. And we're fortunate in in the fact that uh, some of our clients have multiple advisors. So if they want, say, a bond portfolio, 
um, quite topical at the moment. Credit Suisse has typically been a very strong bond house, um, and we can see in light of what's happened in the last week how that's working out for them. So we 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 don't give advice on that. It's just like, hey, you've you've got a relationship with a bond advisor. Um, basically, go and speak to them. They're the experts in it. But from a from a systemic um, risk perspective, investing in bonds, I think, is a is a big big problem. So. Are you able to, I'm sure people have seen headlines, right, um, in terms of what's happened with the banks in the US and with Credit Suisse more recent, more recent well, actually, come to the fore more recently, but it's actually been going on for quite a while. But Tim, can you summarize um, what your opinion is of what's happened in the last couple of weeks and why people should be concerned or not concerned about that? And explain it like I'm Brendo. <laughs> like you wear a mask when you drive by yourself. <laughs> That's right. Sure. So uh, I think in light of what's happened in the last week, it's been a tumultuous week in markets. It's something like we're on the brink of something like we have never seen before. There have been some things that have happened in the markets. I'll just sort of briefly explain what's happened and then what the implications of that are. So what we've seen in the last week is we've seen three fairly important banks from a crypto perspective effectively find out that they're not liquid anymore. So what does that mean? What you've had is you've had Silvergate, you've had Silicon Valley Bank, and you've had Signature Bank <clears throat> basically have a run on the bank. And what happened was depositors thought that there might be an issue getting their money out. So what they did was they went and basically withdrew a whole host of assets like cash from the bank. And these banks had sufficient assets when they recorded it on the books. However, when the liquidity drained out of the system, they were left with basically shitty assets that they had to sell in order to meet the commitments of the cash that they had to provide to clients. And what, what does that mean? They basically, they had all of their liquid assets up front that were ready to sell so that they could liquidate instantly that were valued, you know, on the books, they were valued at a dollar and they could sell it for a dollar. So all of that went. And then they slowly started getting into less and less liquid assets and assets that weren't, they had a market value here down the bottom when they actually had it recorded. So they might have an asset with a market value of 80 cents, but it was recorded on the books at $1. Mm. So there is a mismatch of circa 20% missing. Now, you look at Silicon Valley Bank had assets of circa 200 billion, and that means they're holding a, effectively a $40 billion shortfall. And it's like, well, how is that even possible? And this is back to our last conversation that we had where we talked about the problem with bonds is that there's when, when the bonds lose value, you have lost the value forever. You can't recover the value in that bond. So just to quickly recap, if 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 you buy a bond at say, call it uh, ten dollars, and then you know the interest rates go up and that bond falls from a value of ten dollars to five dollars, you don't, you can't have that bond value go back up to ten dollars. It stays at five dollars permanently, marked down forever. There's no way of recovering that loss on that bond. And this is very different to equities in that when your equity halves in value or when your Bitcoin halves in value, you know, we're pretty confident Bitcoin's going to bounce back. But the problem with bonds is that on a single individual bond, if it drops to 
having a value of 50% of what it was issued at, it will never bounce back up to so, the, sorry, that original you, purchase price. Can you explain to me why or why not? Sorry. Basically, it's it's to do with like a, a an investment calculation. So if 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 we look at the what's happened historically in the last in the last say eighteen months, you had you had bonds. Ten year bonds is probably the most popular. That's effectively the risk free rate in the world. The US ten year bond that was typically trading at two to two and a half percent twelve months ago, eighteen mm. months ago. And then what happens is when the rates go from 0.25 up to 5%, which is where we are today, or might be a little lower, but 5%, give or take, that 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 10-year bond moves from an interest rate of 2.5% to 4.5%. So you can get 2% more interest per annum on your bond if you buy the bond that's issued today as opposed to the bond that was issued a year ago. And so really rough, simple maths is... If there's a 2% difference in the bond that you can get today v the bond you could get last year, multiply 2% by nine years because there's nine years left on the bond and you've lost 18% of the value of the original bond from a year ago. Okay. So it's all sort of technical, but it's that's just how it works. It's like a, a you know future value calculation, which is sort of a tech term or you know finance term for basically valuing a bond yeah and what that means is you know your bond for from a year ago that's got a two and a half percent interest rate via bond from today with four and a half percent assuming they've got the same maturity you're going to pay it roughly 20 percent less for that bond a year ago so these guys bought the bonds a year ago because they were doing the right thing they put that on their books now some real odd quirk with you know the accounting system in the US but because they're a risk free asset which is just like mm. fuck off <laughs> not risk free <laughs> um it's not a risk free asset and this is where you know the the psyche of you know clients and you know a lot of the finance industry thinks that bonds are risk free it's not risk free there's real problems in capital preservation with using bonds so these poor buggers put it on the books and the accounting quirk that's a real problem is because it's a risk-free asset on the books, they didn't have to mark to, mark to market. So this is effectively the same problem that Enron had. They just had assets on the balance sheet that looked like that, but they were really valued down there. Wow. And this is what's happened to all, like, this, is, this isn't just a problem with the crypto banks. This is a problem with all the banks have this problem. Like, but so, do they not know that or see that? Are they ignoring it? Well, the issue... Please correct me if I'm wrong, Pete. But like the issue is, it's been entire careers for a lot of people, right? This that that trade has worked. Buying bonds has been a, a good idea for 30, 40 years nearly, right? Um, yeah. So, anybody, and if you think about that, that means that anybody who's been a professional money manager for 30, 30, 35, 40 years, and who's been playing that trade, has looked good. Um, yeah. It's worked well for them generally. Um, now, yeah. I'm not saying it's been a straight line. But it's but generally it's been a good idea, um, and so now if you went in you know you went in a work workplace at, I don't know twenty two and you work for 35, 40 years you're pretty much at close to retirement age, so almost the entire workforce. Yeah, that's all the and, and 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 this is the problem to your point literally unless you're seventy five still working in the markets which is unheard of unless you're a Stanley Druckenmiller or you know, one of those big, big boys who, you know, effectively running their own their own shop, 
you haven't seen or experienced anything like this. This is a mm. complete paradigm shift. This is this is a whole new ball game. So, you know, these guys weren't doing anything wrong. They, you know, they adhered to all the accounting standards when when the records, you know, when the, you know, the auditors go over what actually happened here. They were doing exactly what they were meant to be doing from an accounting perspective. There was no shoddy, you know, burning. Madoff type stuff happening here. It's just that they were using the rules and regulations that were prescribed to them that they were allowed to do, and they did that. But what that meant was is that they bought a bond for call it two hundred billion dollars worth of bonds here, and they never readjusted the value of it as it as the interest rates went up over the last twelve months and created effectively a forty billion dollar hole in their balance sheet. They just left it at a par value of two hundred billion because that's what the accounting rules and regs said they could do. So they never needed to market to market, whereas. What's really interesting here, and this is what I think about, you know, the plight that Sailor has in trying to get the accounting regulations changed for, um, you know, for how Bitcoin is accounted for on the balance sheet. Bitcoin has the complete opposite problem when you put that on the balance sheet. So here you have bonds that when you buy it for 100, stay on the books at 100 until maturity and assume zero risk. Michael Saylor goes and buys Bitcoin. He puts it on the balance sheet at, say, a billion when that drops 70% in value to 300 million, he's got to keep that on his books at 300 million and can't adjust it upwards. See the problem here? Like there's just two sets of standards. That... Double standard, yeah. 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 So and, and this is where this is where this isn't a problem just for the three crypto banks that they're trying to portray and you know smear Bitcoin and crypto that it's oh, it's a crypto problem. This is not a crypto problem. This is a banking problem. And what we're about to see, I think, in the next week or two or Maybe the next month is, I think, the actions that the Federal Reserve's taken to shore up the U the US banking system will make that US banking system very strong. However, there'll be a leak and a contagion across the pond to Europe and mm. other markets. So watch so out, Europe. Here's a question. Um, if it's not sort of exclusive to crypto banks, why did it happen to these ones first? It's a good question. Yes! I... <laughs> I think Finally. it might I think it might be because crypto has probably suffered the worst out of any industry from a liquidity perspective. So we've been in an 18-month bear market. You've had venture capital money dry up for for crypto, so no one's putting money into those bank accounts for venture projects in in Bitcoin or crypto anymore. Um, it's been really hard to raise money in that that so that's basically one shortfall of liquidity of inflows. And then at the same time, you've got a lot of people withdrawing capital off exchanges because they don't want to play this game anymore because they've just ripped up 70, 80, 90% of the value of their the money that they put in. And they're like, basically, I'm just going to take my toys and run because this market's mm. never coming back. Ironically, they'll be back probably mid-24 when Bitcoin's pumping again and <laughs> buy at the top. And hopefully they've learned a lesson to just hold it. But, but it's a confidence game, right? So, I mean, if there is if there is less actual asset than there is, but there are people holding, you know, there's a hundred dollar expected to be held and there's actually only 50 sitting in the vault. It's just a confidence game. Right. So, yeah. and, and I would guess that probably FTX has made people look a bit more closely. What's happened with FTX has probably made people look a bit more closely. And then um, when people, when people just think, Oh, I'm panicking, I'm going to withdraw. It's they're going to withdraw from those types of banks first. Is that I think so. reasonable? That's that's a fair comment. The smaller bank looks far riskier than the larger banks at the moment. And you think about it, there's been a consolidation 
in all industries, not just banking. There's been a roll-up of power across all industries to basically want to deal with, you know, maybe four or five big institutions in each sector rather than have to deal with three or four or 5,000 different entities. That's, you know, from a regulatory perspective, governments have gotten really fat and lazy and they want to deal mm. with five people rather than 5,000. Mm. It's far easier to do that than, you know, deal with 5,000. So it probably serves their agenda in making their job a whole lot easier. Now they've only got to regulate, you know, the consolidation of the banking industry, I think, will will continue. And across all industries, I think it's just going to happen um, probably at a faster rate. However, what they have in, implemented from a policy perspective has ensured that depositors will be made whole. So no one's going to lose money who's put their cash in the bank, which is a big thing at shoring up confidence to your point. Yeah. So let's go there. So where, where does, so there's the, there's the, the, uh, the taxpayer will not bear the cost of bailing out the banks again, yet <laughs> we're bailing out, we're making everyone whole. So who's paying yeah. the bill, Pete? Well, yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's no way around it. There is no, yeah. there's no other, there's no other pot of money anywhere. So that, no. so when, when uh, Janet Yellen stands up and says, make statements like that, they're just, they're just a lie, aren't they? Or is that maybe she knows something I do? I, you know, I, I I don't claim to be an oracle when it comes to this sort of thing. And Janet Yellen, you know, seasoned veteran, and maybe she's got you know uh, access to things that I don't know. I'm sure she does. So, but looking at it on as as a whole, there's no way around it. There's a, you know, just on the three banks that went under in the last week, there's at least a forty billion dollar hole in that balance sheet, and they're saying no, 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 we're going to make make good on that. No one's going to have to pay and there's no way around filling in that forty billion dollar hole. Yeah, but so yeah, it's... regardless, the, the pot this forty billion is going to come from somewhere. It doesn't, and it's yeah. going to be, a, it's going to come from a pot. But ultimately, that pot was was filled in the first place by the taxpayer. So they might not be paying it now. They pay, they might have paid it. But it's been paid by the taxpayer. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I, we're, I, we're, we're we're going to defer it. And what they're fundamentally doing is what what I think will end up happening is they'll say, right, your shitty bonds that we sold to you. That we told you were good until maturity. You know, rather than being valued at 200 billion, they're valued at 160 billion if you want to sell them on the market today. We're going to effectively replace those bonds with new bonds that are valued at 200 billion today. And we're going to warehouse those $160 billion worth of bonds on our balance sheet and we'll wear it and we'll figure out how to make money with it. It's basically a distraction game until we've mm. forgotten about it and then they'll do whatever the fuck they feel like with it. So yeah. Just, just look a, over, you know, look over here, monkey, while we do shit over here. Yeah, it's, it's just another smoke and mirrors. It's a can kick. It's everything is a can kick. It is. Um, yeah. Um. So it's frustrating to watch because you sort of sit there and you look and think, well, we've got a system that works, but you know, Bitcoin is not not ready for prime time like that right now. We don't have the systems, the processes, companies set up to basically fill in and backfill all of those problems. Even See, though I'd like to think we do, but we don't. I, I can understand why people don't, uh, well, I guess just don't understand what's going on because it's it's complicated. You know what I mean? The whole, Deliberately. The whole system is so complicated that, that the masses are kind of have no option but to believe what they're told or not believe, but at least go, okay, well, that person's in power. They have this portfolio. They must be more of an expert at this than me. So what Janet Yellen says must be 
true <laughs> or right. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and people should, sh- I mean, that, that ultimately people should be able to think that way. Like there's no way any of us could be an expert on everything. So we're going to have to rely on experts. I, I know experts well, is like a triggering word right now, but we are going to have to, even in a Bitcoin world, we're going trust to have, verify. but yeah, but we're still going to have to, when, like, I'm not going to do an, an operation on myself. Right. Um, so I'm going to, at some stage, you're pretty tight. <laughs> Yeah, true, true. Um, but like, I'm yeah, I might cut the hair, but I'm pro- I'm probably not. Um, I'm probably not going to like take out one appendix, right? So we are going to have to trust experts at some stage again. Mm. But the experts have to earn the trust again, because mm. um, yeah. they have they have just, um, yeah, talking out of both sides of the mouth, t- saying one thing and meaning another, um, obf- obfuscating everything to make things complicated for the ordinary person is just not on anymore as far as yeah, yeah. more and more and more people are seeing that um, and just that's they're getting angry and they're walking away from politics or they're throwing things or they're joining protests they're not quite understanding we also have a solution here but it is a it's a huge problem in society i think people are just almost forced into apathy because because it's just too either too hard or it's just too frustrating or they're just trying to spin the plates in their own house to keep the lights on yeah right? exactly let's throw their hands in the air and walk away well, that's, that's I think, the major thing that's happening at the moment. Like, what we're talking about is, you know, quite cerebral. It's very complicated. Mm. It takes a lot of time, energy, and effort. And I dare say all of us have spent, you know, 500-plus hours staring at Bitcoin and all of the ancillary, you know, I guess, modalities that go into supporting Bitcoin and its thesis, like its ethos and 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 monetary system, and then it gives you a, a better understanding of what we're working with here and then the frustration comes i think with bitcoin being a wildly open and transparent system and then when you compare that to well the juxtaposition that is our existing system i I think i mentioned the last time we caught up the thing that's broken my brain i still haven't fixed my brain on the back of this is you know two weeks before christmas our you know the federal reserve the 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 institution that sets the reserve or the risk-free rate of the world basically came out and said oh yeah by the way the june numbers for unemployment were 1.1 million higher than we thought and it's like, <clears throat> I, I beg your pardon? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we just found another million unemployed from six months ago. We're just going to tell you now. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, I knew there was some level of bullshit to the numbers that we were getting. And you sort of think, oh, well, it's not China. Those numbers are really made up. But then when they come and deliver that to you, it's like you realise it's all the same. Like, they're wow. just telling you what it, whatever you want to hear is basically what they're going to tell you to achieve an outcome that they're trying to do. And it was probably politically inconvenient to tell us that there are a million unemployed back in June because that would have led to effectively the Democrats getting absolutely whitewashed in in the midterm election. And then it also would have put a huge amount of pressure on Jerome Powell to, to curb the huge interest rate spikes that he's basically put in place. Because if you look at his job, his job is to provide financial stability. Now, that comes in basically two forms that he's got to balance. The first being inflation. He needs to have inflation circa 2% because that's price stability. And then the second is economic stability, which is the overarching goal that he's trying to achieve, which is typically um, pushes against unemployment. And so if they had an unemployment number of a million unemployed in a month in the US, like that is a big freaking deal, which would have put a huge pause or at least huge pressure on him to pause any rate rises for that for the rest of the year. So in the meantime, he took rates from circa 2% to 5% in the last 12 months. And just before Christmas, they dropped this little announcement that, oh, yeah, by the way, unemployment was 
lot worse than we thought it would be, but um, the number's there now and we're past that, so we're still kicking on with interest rate rises. So it's yeah, very well, frustrating. One quick question. How much accountability do you think f- does or should fall mm. on someone like Jerome Powell or Philip Lowe? I mean, because they, they, obviously they're the, the spokesperson, the head of yeah, the yeah. whole thing, but like it can't be all them. No, and this is where... The, the US is probably an interesting one. I don't think, I think Jerome Powell's fundamentally a hawk and this is a, a very unpopular position to hold, but uh, I'm actually rooting for Jerome Powell in what's happening right now. And I think he's trying to create some form of uh, fiscal governance and a framework around returning to um, some frugality in the United States by putting pressure on Congress that they can't just keep spending and spending and spending. You know, they're just punch drunk spending and increasing debt limits and the rest of it. And Jerome has only one response to basically curb that, you know, that unended spending, and that is to raise rates. That also serves, I think, a really good point that it probably puts a huge amount of pressure on, you know, the ECB, European Central Bank, and forces them to then put up interest rates because under this zero interest rate policy that we've been working with the last 10 years, it's just been like dumb decision after dumb decision and there's no financial consequence to it because you can borrow money for nothing and there's no time frames on on the payback whereas by putting up interest rates as unpopular and painful as this is it it actually is providing consequence to poor mm. investment or poor capital allocation decisions and this yeah. is where say with bitcoin and thinking about investing <clears throat> if your sole investment is bitcoin <clears throat> and you want to diversify all of a sudden you've got to think really hard about hey, is this investment better than Bitcoin? Mm. <laughs> so it brings some financial accountability. That's the federal US system. If you look at the Australian system, look, Philip Lowe, he, he can't really do much. He's basically in the tail draft of, of the US. He's He's got to keep interest rates in a, you know, in a bound, you know, in a band between what the US is doing. And the only mistake he really made, I think, was making an off-the-cuff comment saying interest rates aren't going to rise until 2024. It was a oh. really stupid... It was a really stupid thing to say. I think if he had his time back, that's the only thing he'd take back. Like it was Mr. Mr. Yeah. Remortgage to my left here. <laughs> well, should I can I should I tell that anecdote? I mean, yeah, right. Well, yeah. So I don't know yeah. if, if you've heard it, Pete, but I I locked my or fixed my mortgage for um two years and I, I spoke to the broker because I refinanced did a Renault, spoke to the broker and I said, Oh, look, I'm looking at four to five. And hats obviously was like as long as you can, Brendo, as long as you can. And anyway, so I'm talking to the broker, and he's like, "No, no, 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 the RBA is not going to raise rates until 2024. So do two years, and you'll get another bite of the cherry. So come October, mate, I'm going to be hurting." Yeah, and a lot of people are. Yeah, like basically eight hundred thousand or something, something stupid number of fixed rate mortgages, or four hundred thousand. It's one of the two. I mean, you're yeah, starting. No, it, it'd be Sorry. Yeah. Mm. 30% of all mortgages in the system are basically rolling from a rate with 2% rates to probably 5 or maybe even by then it's going to be a 6 in front of the number. Like yep. that's a, that's that's a, big a jump. huge pain Over, point. What, the next and 12, 18 months, something like that? This year, I think. Yep. yep. So this year, I think like we're two, we're two rate rises away and then you're going to get a variable rate at 6%, maybe upwards of 6%, 65 and then you might get a 0.7% discount because you've got a you know, sizable mortgage or you're on some professional pack or 
mm-hmm. some whatever. It might might be high fives by the time you get there in October, unless things change dramatically between now and then, which I maybe this banking run is going to cause a change in interest rate outlook for the US, but that would filter down to us as well. Mm. I hope it does, but there's a lot of pain out there that I just, I'm very pessimistic on our financial outlook. And I'm I'm looking around thinking, why isn't anyone seeing the pain and the misery coming down the pipe that I am? It's, it's bad, like really bad. I mm. think you're starting to see it in, like, I try not to read as much mainstream as as I can, but, you know, you have to read something to understand where people come from. Um, and you're starting to see articles now about, you know, well-paid people um, with a couple of kids who didn't do much wrong. Um, and they are now screaming because all of a sudden their their mortgage has gone up $1,000 or $1,500 a month. And they're, you know, they maybe can stomach it for now. But like the, at the, at the worst end, people are, they're gone. They're gone already. But even people now who ne- haven't really done a whole lot wrong, always, um, aren't always start been, to feel it. And it's, that's been, starting to come through mainstream now. Uh, Woolies, like tonight, getting food for dinner, mm-hmm. um, and a woman with a trolley, and I think she had three kids around her. I just heard her, just you know, right side of my head, just so frustrating. And then you know, one of the kids like, what? What? She's just like everything's so expensive. And then she's talking about yeah. $10 for this cheese and yep. And then she put it back and they went somewhere else. But it's, it's like, just the connecting the dots for people is so difficult. Like it's, um, well, it takes yeah. time too, right? It's complicated. Yeah, it's, 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 you it's, know? A, it's a lot of learning involved and it's, and it's, it's probably pretty unreasonable to expect somebody at the depths of despair can come and listen to a Bitcoin podcast. I mean, why would they even do that? Why would they even connect those dots to try and do that in the first place? You know, or why would they? Desperation. Yeah. Desperation is basically what it comes down to. And and this is where like one one of the things that I really want to, and maybe we'll just have a podcast on this, you know, a later time. But one of the things I think Bitcoin does is it provides hope. And one of the things that I wanted to work on with anyone who'd listen basically is, evaluation model for valuing Bitcoin at a a really large number that basically follows logic, reason, and basically comes to a huge number that is an irrefutable argument as to why Bitcoin is worth, you know, millions or billions of dollars. And then get that out into the social psyche so that, you know, we as Bitcoiners can say, hey, this is where we think Bitcoin's going. You should be a part of it. And you know, when it comes to to people who are desperate from a financial sense, you know, they're they're probably a lot more open to hearing about a lottery ticket that could be Bitcoin. And this really? is where, you know, when it comes to, um, and, and this is definitely not financial advice, so I'll just sort of qualify that before we talk about it. But, you know, for people who've got a lot of money, you can say, oh, well, you can have, you know, 10% or 20% in bitcoin and it's not going to it's not going to change their life at all and then the flip side of that is the less you have the more you can put into bitcoin because you know you've got that far you know you've got that far to fall instead of that far well mm. hey you know are we at the time in the cycle where you know buying bitcoin's actually not a bad hedge against what's happening and then if it goes to zero you're going to be there in you know 6 months anyway so you may as well have a punt and hope it goes up mm. Not financial advice. Mm. No, I mean the, the podcast is called Two Bit Idiots. If you're taking up advice from a podcast, right? Yeah, we've got, we've got a third I doubt one, right? that, pal. Um, but um, if yeah. 
I have also noticed, you know, people have started paying attention to like how to shop, how to be a savvy shopper or how to get more points out of your club card or the, all these sorts of things. So yes. people are now going, okay, well, I need to scrimp and save, be a bit tighter, be a bit more flexible. Yep. How do I go about that? And if, if as Bitcoiners, we can sort of put ourselves into that conversation, go, okay, well, did you know that? You know, if you spend a hundred dollars at you know buying your kids' shoes, mm. well, you can get sats back for that purchase. You don't have to buy any Bitcoin at all. Mm. Mm. You know, and take zero risk. You're buying the shoes anyway because you had to. Take zero risk. I mean, I would think people should have some uh, beyond that. But even if it's just that, it's, mm. it's better than nothing. Um, yeah, great. It's just a tough conversation to have when it is. people are people are struggling to put food in the mouth. It's yeah. It's a horrible comment. I wouldn't want to be having that conversation. Sadly, I think uh, unless things dramatically change from an economic perspective and we start getting some relief and as far as the interest rates go, like we, we are in for um, a world of pain coming down the pipe. And this is where, you know, in Australia anyway, and probably, you know, the Western world, we've got, you know, the largest financed asset on earth is basically residential real estate. Mm. And, you know, that's where a lot of the, you know, residential mortgage-backed securities in the US are. We've got a slightly different banking system here, so we're not going to have, well, touch wood, but, you know, we're not supposedly meant to have as many problems as the US has because we've actually got, you know, the issuer of the, the loans in Australia basically still hold those on their balance sheet. They can't securitize that and then on-sell it. Basically, all care, no responsibility. That's what they do in the US. So it kind of encourages a far looser lending regime than what we've got here. So because the the banks here own the mortgages and effectively have, um, I guess, accountability or responsibility for for the performance of those loans. They're they're far less inclined to let it rain when it comes to giving out money. So, um, come October, when my fixed rate ends and my wife wants me to sell Bitcoin and I refuse, <laughs> do you have a spare bed? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, under the house. <laughs> I'll take it. I, I live under houses anyway. Look at this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be, I think, the, the next six months, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. This is like quite tumultuous. I think we've got, on a serious note, that what, what they did in the last, say, two or three days, four days with the US banking sector and shoring that up, they basically shored that up on a Sunday night and said, we're good for it. That That's a huge benefit to some form of stability but I, I don't know if you feel this but I just look around and think despite the fact that they've said it and they say it's all good I just get you know it's just mm. shades of Do Kwon saying steady lads like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. got you, you know, bro for yeah. sure um, yeah how, how so, do you how do you balance this kind of situation as a financial guy right so obviously you're seeing a lot of stuff that other people aren't seeing and there's potentially, as you said, a lot of pain, but as a financial guy, you have got to be kind of enthralled by it, yeah. Of not ex not excited, but just just really, really invested in what's actually kind of going to happen and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, that's like you know, you, you wish to live in interesting times. Well, from a financial yeah. perspective, we there's probably no more interesting time than where we're in right now. We haven't. You know, there were just some anomalies from a from a financial perspective last year that literally have never been seen before. And, you know, you think about 
last year, the, the S&P 500 was down 30%, but long-term bonds were down 30% and short-term bonds were down 15%. Gold was up maybe 2%. Yeah. Like that's that's never happened before. Like you can really? go back through 200 years worth of financial data and you still won't have that type of anomaly. And what what's being processed at the moment and sort of putting a bow on this and bring it back into what the original question was on this, this is why these balance sheets in the US on the US banking sector are kind of cactus because no one had accounted for effectively a 16 or a 2,000% increase in the interest rate. The interest rate went from 0.25% to 5% in a year. Mm. That's been the fastest rate of change in any interest rate we've ever seen. And what that's done is it's just decimated the value of the bonds that they've got on the balance sheet that no one has even thought to revalue. Mm. Like, you cannot write this shit. This is so one-on-one accounting. Like, And I hate talking about accounting because it's so freaking boring. Like, oh, <laughs> kill me now. But like this is really important. You put a hole in your balance sheet, and it's going to mess you up. Like it, you you can't be liquid if you don't have a, a fluid balance sheet, and you're not marking the market. All of a sudden, you know the three banks have you know over forty billion dollars in losses that they can't basically meet their commitments. So the Fed steps in, basically says, "Don't worry, we'll warehouse this." Those loans are good. You know, it's like the Jedi waving his hand in you know, yeah. Return of the <laughs> yeah. Jedi or whatever. You know, this is good. No, well, it's not fucking good. Like, no, it's yeah. not. There's a $40 billion hole and I can see it. And that's the problem. We've seen it now. And this is where we haven't probably seen these issues in the past. Yeah. And why this was something that always used to bother me. And I think most, I think I largely understand it now. And I think most Bitcoiners largely understand it now. But why do people in other countries focus so heavily on what's happening in America? There's a multitude of reasons. The first I would say is that the US sets the risk-free rate of capital globally. So whatever the whatever the interest rate is in the US basically permeates through the entire financial system. So we get affected by whatever happens with their interest rate. That's the first one. And that basically sets the cost of capital on a global scale. And, and that's probably the biggest thing that it does. Secondly, it's it's basically 83% of global trade. So, you know, everyone is really hypersensitive to what's happening to the US dollar because, you know, last time I checked, there's 6.3 trillion of global trade and over 5 trillion of that is done in US dollars on a daily basis. Mm. So think about this, a, a German manufacturer <clears throat> buying whatever it is, you know, some sort of manufacturing goods from China They've got nothing to do with US or US dollar, but that contract will be denominated in US dollars. Wild yeah. to think, like, what the fuck has Germany, German manufacturer got to do with, you know, a Chinese manufacturer providing a good? Well, Chinese manufacturer requires payment in USD. Mm. So that's why the US is basically the big swing dick in the world that, you know, anything they do permeates through the entire world from a capital perspective. And on top of that, they've got more capital than any other market because traditionally they've been a very good custodian of capital. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this this is, I can imagine the frustration of people listening who go, why the hell are these guys? I live in Australia or I live in wherever it might be. Um, why the hell do these guys always revert back to what is Jerome Powell doing or what is, what did, you know, what did uh, Biden say today? Like, why, what, why does that affect me? And that's basically the answer is why if it because because all of those all of those uh, decisions permeate the, the yeah. whole system. So you're going straight to the source for the info, I guess. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like why are we on Twitter 
you know, we're on Twitter because we don't want to wait three days to get the story from the news. Or <laughs> yeah, wait how a week, is that? right? It's That's like weird. <laughs> it's bizarre, but it's just like, all right, just you know, cut the noise. Give me the real deal. You get to see what's happening, and you just know that it's going to filter down to us, whether it's three months, six months, whatever it is. But yeah, yeah. fundamentally, that's why I look at the US, and then you know, from a from an investment perspective, we've we focus heavily on the US because, firstly, their you know their their property rights there are the strongest in the world. We know they've got a strong legal system. They've got effectively the global reserve currency, and I believe they've got the best, biggest, most liquid market. So we want to be invested in that market and what's most important though is that from an investment perspective when you know when you have a stock market run like we've had where the s p was down 30 percent um what from being a being a foreign investor in the us one thing that sort of softens that blow uh quite substantially is although the s p 500 was down 30 percent the aussie dollar was down 15 percent so your relative loss by being invested in the US markets was really only 15% because the US dollar appreciated so much. So as there's a flight to safety when, you know, effectively shit hits the fan globally, money, capital, you know, asset, well, capital runs to the US. So it basically strengthens the US dollar relative to every other currency. And that's where you you hear about the US dollar wrecking ball and the trouble that that's going to impugn on the rest of the world. Um. We're going to get to the topic of this podcast eventually, but I've got one more question. I've got one more question. Before we came, sorry, Pete. This is going to go long, guys. I hope that's okay for everyone. I'm going to have to piss in a minute. Right, okay, you go. You go. Anybody wants to uh, take a break, press pause. Go and have a, go and get yourself a, go and get yourself a strong coffee. Or a strong after, the, after this question. Okay, the question is, um, before we started, um, you, brought, uh, you mentioned that um, you're... The the how much I'm going to put this, the the U.S. approach to Bitcoin and as a from a government level, from a regulatory standpoint, is moving away from crypto and not openly pro Bitcoin, but perhaps if you start to read between the lines, pro Bitcoin or less anti Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you expand for for me, but for everybody else? what you think is happening, what you think you can see. Sure. So I, I might just put it into um, some context with the last bull run that we've had. So the last bull run that we had finished in circa December 21, it was a really weak bull run from a Bitcoin perspective. And I want to speculate that the reason why it was such a poor bull run from, um, I guess, a historical perspective uh, for Bitcoin was because you had FTX, which basically at the time accounted for 15 to 20% of global trading crypto and Bitcoin. What they were doing is they would sell a client to Bitcoin. They would then put that on their balance sheet. The client thought they had the Bitcoin basically custodied with FTX. FTX would then give that Bitcoin or loan that Bitcoin to Alameda, their you know hedge fund arm. Alameda would instantly sell that Bitcoin on the market. So there was sell pressure coming and they would take that cash and then go and buy altcoins. So by my reckoning, I think we had a massive underperformance in Bitcoin because we had huge sell pressure. Effectively, mm. 20% of market orders were not going through as they should have. And at the same time, altcoins massively outperformed in that last bull run because you had 20% of, well, you had the Bitcoin that was Alameda was selling was going straight into altcoins. So by reason of deduction, I think 
Bitcoin massively underperformed because you had huge sell pressure and you had the altcoins massively outperformed because you had basically massive buy pressure from Alameda. Now, fast forward, that was that was a huge muck up in the industry and one of the things that really sort of set us back quite dramatically. Fast forward to where we are now, we've had three crypto banks basically go down and they, they were basically... Um, the major custodians for all of the stable coins in the US. So they were the on-off ramps for all of the, effectively the exchanges or the major on-off ramps for the exchanges. So you're cracking your Coinbase, your Binance, they basically bank with those banks and they're basically shut down. So what does that mean? Crypto and Bitcoin's on-off ramps are basically going to be stymied quite dramatically. Now, that's a big deal. But when you overlay what's happened in the last, say, two or three weeks with the SEC and Gary Gensler and how he's come out and basically reaffirmed that Bitcoin is domain of the CFTC and that everything else is going to be under his control, reading tea leaves here, I look at that and think that is wildly pessimistic for anyone who's holding an altcoin because I think the words were basically, if you've got a website or you've got a phone number or you've got a founder that I can reach you at, I'm going to be knocking on your door and basically serving you with some form of regulation to mm. understand why you're not a security. And then when you think about this, all of a sudden, this is going to be very detrimental, I think, from the exchange model business in the US. So Kraken, Coinbase, Binance are going to have huge issues because if they're, if they're serving their clients securities, they're going to have to readjust their licenses. They're going to have to upgrade those licenses so that they can be security dealers and they can actually allow their clients to buy all the altcoins. And so I look at this and I think what they've fundamentally done is created a funnel whereby everyone can funnel into Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin because that's effectively operated or regulated by the CFTC. And that's wildly bullish because you're not going to have the SEC oversight. So they can buy Bitcoin. But if you want to go into the altcoin space, then we're going to regulate you. Sorry, mate. We had a bloody Harley or something just drive past. Um, oh, gotcha. Okay, I didn't yeah. hear it. So, so what? Um, what I think that is is that's wildly bullish for Bitcoin because if the US US citizens are going to participate in this altcoin craze, firstly, they're not going to have access to it, and secondly, if they do want access to it, they're they're probably going to have to go back to what we saw in 2015, 16, where if you want to trade shit coins back then, the denominator of every trade in shitcoins was done in bitcoin because mm. ethereum wasn't around so mm. if you want to basically buy big yeah, if you want to trade in altcoins and the rest of it you're going to have to buy bitcoin on an exchange in the us and then you're going to have to send that bitcoin to a effectively a foreign exchange that allows you to shitcoin yeah and so everything will be denominated in bitcoin because you won't be allowed to do it in ethereum because they won't let you mm. so huge buy pressure for bitcoin uh, Can I get uh, a hard on in a second episode? Uh, but I'd, I'd rather you didn't, but. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gonna... No, again, nobody's going to notice. So it's okay. Um, what, um... So, so, so I think that's, you know, that's fundamentally what's happening. And, you know, to, to the Bitcoiners out there concerned about, you know, oh, this regulation's going to kill us and the rest of it. I don't think so. We can create a circular economy where we can use Bitcoin, pay for it and the rest of it. And, if I'm reading tea leaves right, I think this is wildly bullish for Bitcoin, but it's just going to take the next 
12 to 18 months, maybe even two to three years to play out. If we're lucky, it'll all conspire around the end of 2024 in a massive parabolic run. Well, even the halving next year, surely got to be pretty bullish, no? Uh, I mean, you're, I think you're probably going to go into a Bitcoin halving at the same time as government's printing, at the same time as inflation is still running. That's, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably... But what does that mean? People... I mean, it's up, up, up. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. People have spare, but... flush with cash and they got to do something with it. And Bitcoin's doing this. It's like 2020 all over again. Yeah. And you don't have the altcoin to basically suck the fear out of Bitcoin's mm. you know, rise. So they'll only have, have Bitcoin that they'll be able to do, which... Yeah, be a great thing. Just not to piss on everybody's um, parade here, but um, what do you make of the? Have you seen the fidelity news in terms of allowing access to trading of crypto and Bitcoin? What do you think that? Do you think that makes a difference to your thesis? I mean, it's also I would I would stress that it is uh, right now is zero withdrawal. You can buy, but you can't withdraw. So do not do that. Obviously, no financial advice. Do however you how you like, but don't. but um, yeah, so you don't think that's that's no because Fidelity is going to be regulated by the SEC anyway. They are regulated by the SEC, so they have to fall in line with whatever recommendations are handed down. And this is where I think the altcoins are going to get absolutely belted. Um, when we caught up with Plan B in November, that was one of his major concerns. He said altcoins, he wouldn't be trading them, he wouldn't be near it, and. I agree with him. I, I think there's huge regulatory risk with that. And we talked about the difference between the regulatory risk with what we've got in Bitcoin and the regulatory risk with what we've got in everything else. And it's chalk and cheese. So, you know, Fidelity doing whatever they do, I, you know, it's a bit optimistic or, you know, um, naive to think that they're not going to well, they're going to do Bitcoin only. They're just not. They're too big. They've got to. Yeah, absolutely. They've got to provide options for their clients. And the problem is, is that it probably takes somewhere between a hundred to a thousand hours to figure out that the best form of diversification in crypto is just to buy Bitcoin. That's your least risky asset. Which, you know, in in traditional finance, you know, you look at diversification and ways to mitigate risk and. Most people don't understand when they get into Bitcoin or crypto that the only risk mitigation that you've got in crypto is just to buy Bitcoin. So, yeah. Wonderful segue. Let's get on topic. Okay, I'm going to um, piss. I'm gonna okay. Piss. okay, I'll, t- I'll chat to him. You have to do what you have to do. This is going to be... Brendan is a way to prison my garden. Please don't scare my neighbours. Well, I do. I, I rely on the uh, the Zoom... Bloody... Oh, so that, that we we really we, yeah. it's not that we're tight. It's just that you just so got, a terrible, a you've just got yeah. a terrible bladder. That's what we're saying, right? Okay, sorry, Pete. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so risk. Yeah. Um, you're talking. Let's go. So thinking about your clients again and the management of the risk uh, today, and then the management of the risk as they think about their um, passing on their wealth to family members down the road, passing on their wealth uh, and managing the risk down the road. Um, we, wh- where do you start? First of all, where do you start in terms of securing what they have just now in a Bitcoin world? Um, and then what do you think about in terms of passing that through uh, like generationally? Good question. I think the yeah, first place you want to start, I think with any of this is probably not where you'd think. And that is... <clears throat> You know, regardless of what asset you've got, whether it's a a property, a home, a commercial building, it might be a stock portfolio. Um, there's a big something behind you, by the way. Um, 
what what that is it's is not Brando. <laughs> <laughs> Big I actually think it was crawling on the screen, so it was in front of you, not behind oh you, for God. anyone who's not cr- watching. It's a cricket. We've got a cricket. It's a cricket. There you go. Oh it's better than a leech last time. Oh, so yeah. What, what, um... Holy shit. Sorry. I'll, I'll focus. Yeah. So I, I, I think you've, regardless of what asset you've got, you've got to look at what are the options from a legal perspective with holding that asset. So most people think, oh, okay, well, I just buy a home and I put that in my personal name and then, you know, when I pass away, I'm, I presume it's just going to be left to to someone, you know, my kids or my wife or what have you. But if you firstly need to make a conscious decision what, what type of structure you want to hold those assets in. So, you know, every Australian has basically a minimum or every working Australian has at least two options in front of them to hold assets. They've got their personal name and then they've got their superannuation fund two separate legal entities. So for us, um, we probably layer on some complexity with that in that we look at trust structures. So that can be discretionary trusts, alternatively uh, family trusts, and you need to make a decision or companies. So you've got probably three to four, five different types of legal entities that you can actually hold those assets in. And then you need to determine what is going to be the best way to hold that asset. So certain things or certain certain entities or types of entities have got different different risk profiles different different benefits different tax treatments so you need to figure out how you want to structure that to start with um so thinking about that in a non-bitcoin world um yep what are the considerations for well like can are you i don't want to talk about you you know your individual clients obviously but can you is it possible for you to give a sort of you know, create a a, a, a a hypothetical client and and talk us through what yeah. you would what you would do for them. Yeah, absolutely. and we'll call him Schmames Schmacker. <laughs> okay, so let let's just say, um, would it be fair to say, you know, um, let's let's take a client who might have a home and investment property, so two properties in Sydney, and that's $2 million bucks worth of assets that they're basically going to leave to their their estate, their wife, or alternatively their children. So most people don't think much about that, and they think, okay, I'm going to leave that. So those assets might be already purchased in personal names. So there's no real way that you can manufacture an outcome when it comes to putting them into different legal entities, um, whether it's a family trust, a discretionary trust, or in a company name, but you'd leave them in personal names and then you'd want to make sure that you've got a will and this is where when we're at the bush bash together when i think nathan asked um who's got a will here and maybe five hands went up in a room of 80 which was terrifying for me because i look at that and i'm like oh shit if i could talk about some horror stories of you know what what is involved when you don't have a will and what the process is like it's a horrible process. Basically, when when you don't have a will, you basically leave the state to look after the disbursement of your assets. And there's no real accountability. There's no time frame that they're working on. They're a law unto their own. And, you know, they do a good job, but, you know, they're not pressured by anyone because they're effectively government employees who, well, they're not quite, but, you know, quasi-government employees who are just ticking boxes and doing what they're required to. And the risk for them doing their job incorrectly is... Is, is a financial penalty. So they've got no incentive to cut corners or push things forward. 
because they're going to suffer a fate that they don't need to. So without a will, and this is where, you know, wills are, are so critically important, there are sort of two aspects to, you know, passing on assets to generations. There are, there's the legal component to it about how the actual legal process works. And there's then there's the actual physical transfer of the asset. Now, with all assets, you've basically got the, the state and the systems and processes that we've built out in our society to help you with the transfer of title deeds on properties, to help you with the title or the, you know, the stock certificates to transfer those to your estate or whatever you might be. But with Bitcoin, there's no infrastructure built up around how you transfer that to your beneficiary. So it's quite a, a different process. And this is where um, I'll talk about the legal framework and why we want or why why we think it's really important to have a legal framework around your well, it's important to have a will because it provides a legal framework that gives your beneficiaries protection. And it also can help manufacture better outcomes from an asset protection perspective. And it can also deliver a much better tax perspective, uh, tax outcome for, for the generations as well. So it sort of gets, you know, potentially dry and boring, but with a will, and, and this is one of the things that we, we stress with clients is with a will, you can have two types of wills. Fundamentally, you can have a simple will, which is, hey, I leave everything to my wife, to my kids, and, you know, it's easy. Basically, what happens is the, the state steps in or the solicitor steps in. The executor on the will basically helps the transfer of the assets and, you know, basically your wives might inherit what, what you've got, and that's basically relatively simple. But from a from a legal and a tax perspective, that might not deliver the best outcomes. And let me explain what the alternative is to a simple will. A simple will is... The simple, uh, uh, say a, a more complicated will involves something called, in Australia anyway, a testamentary trust. And these testamentary trusts basically have a, a similar name in pretty much every Western country. It's relatively similar from a legal framework, but they're just called different things. But what's important about this testamentary trust is, oh, sorry, this complicated will is that when you leave your assets with a complicated will, you set up a trust on your death to put all those assets into upon death. So rather than just being handed to the persons personally to take that, there's a trust that all the assets go into. And it's like, oh, well, what's the big deal there? What does that mean? Like, what are the benefits to that? Well, there are two key benefits. Firstly, the testamentary trust provides a legal framework that gives you the best form of asset protection that you can possibly have on all fronts, whether that's uh, from litigation, from personal or professional malfeasance. Um, you might accidentally hit someone in a car, you know, just by accident and they want to sue you. If those assets are in a personal name, then you can effectively lose them. But if they're in a testamentary trust, they're effectively protected. Um, the other big one is, and, and this was, you know, almost comical for me when it comes to Bitcoin is that most Bitcoiners that, you know, that we talk about are, you know, really hardcore Bitcoiners thinking, I don't want to involve the state in anything that I do. I want to protect my Bitcoin. I want to be private. I don't want them to know anything about it. It's like, well, I, I don't get into personal decisions with any Bitcoiner about, you know, how they want to conduct their affairs, but I will just sort of highlight that there are some benefits to actually using the state and the legal system that, that are on offer to actually protect yourself and, and effectively carve out an outcome for you that can be beneficial. So sometimes it's actually good to use what the state provides you to do this. And in this instance, um, I think the first question I had when we were at the Bush Bash was, um, you know, we talked about the, the government stealing our Bitcoins, but 
from a risk profile perspective, and this is my job managing risk, the number one risk that all of our clients have from losing their Bitcoins is the person they sleep next to Hmm. in a family law court, basically divorce. That's the number one way you lose Bitcoins in the country. And the reason why I sort of bring that up is because under a testamentary trust, you know, you can basically have your parents or whoever it is leave assets in a testamentary trust and that will give you the strongest legal protection in a family law court situation. So that usually excludes those assets from any sort of divorce proceedings, which is a big deal. Mm. So, Hats, do you have a will? I, I do have a will. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, but, but if it was probably up to me, I probably wouldn't have had a will. My, my wife's an accountant, um, and in Scotland they do a thing so I, I, well, no, I've actually got two wills. <laughs> That's probably a, sorry, but you could, you could bash me about the head for this one, Pete. So, um, so in Scotland they do a thing where if you one week of the year or something like that, that you the the legal <clears throat> profession will provide a will free of charge, but the cost of well, no, you pay, but the whole cost of the will goes to a charity rather than going into the lawyer's pocket, which yeah. is you know pretty, a re, pretty good thing to do, right? Um. So we did one then, and I thought, well, mine's very simple. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of assets at the time. Um, I don't know. I still don't. But um, I just thought, you know, there'd be this, my wife, myself, my daughter, you know, she, I die, she gets, she dies, I get, we both die. You know, daughter gets, and beyond that, frankly, I don't <laughs> I don't care too much. But, um, mm. but when sitting down with the guy, and he just started going through situations like, well, what if... Um, you know, what if um, you die and um, your wife remarries and she marries, you know, some guy from wherever and the guy's a nightmare and then the, your money never makes it to your daughter. Basically that, you know, that kind of, yeah. it's like, oh, I never thought of that. Right. Yeah. And then he started going, he just started going down a hundred, well, plenty of different avenues. I was like, never considered that, never considered that, never considered that. I can, And so I then saw the benefit of it. And then when I came here. Uh, again, we uh, we we had another one drawn up here, which I believe within it it's, it says that it's it's over overwrites what. So you have, I think what you have to do is that you have to sort of overwrite this one takes precedence over the one that was previously written. So um, m- m- much of the content was similar, but um, but yeah, you know, when you have things in two countries, it becomes a bit more complicated. But short answer to question: Yes, I do. Fuck. So, all right, Pete, help me out. <laughs> all right. So, what, so no, no, seriously, like a Brendo, like somebody who doesn't have a will. Um, I, where where would their first point of call be? Like, who would they go to? What would what would the question? What kind of questions would they be asking people? Um, and what should they be thinking about? I I think there are a number of things that you want to be thinking about. Personally, I, you know, you ask your local solicitor. I'm not sure if they if they specialize in estate planning. A lot of solicitors will say they do, but they might not write a lot of wills or, you know, really focus on that estate planning. And whether it's, you know, the situation I'm in or, you know, where I live, what have you, um, we spend an enormous amount of time basically vetting lawyers to to understand whether or not they're capable of delivering the outcomes that we want for our clients. And it's really important to understand what, their capabilities are, and I don't pretend to be an expert on estate planning, but I've been around it enough that Mm. I kind of know what's good and what's not. And, you know, there's basically a list of people that, well, there's probably about three that we really like and we'd recommend. And and this is where, you know, start with speaking to your local solicitor. Are they familiar? You know, you can ask them, you know, what what should be 
you know, basically, the, this is what I'm trying to do. What what do you recommend? And without sort of stepping on any toes, most most um, local solicitors I would have thought would discuss a simple will with you, and they would basically say, "Great, this is what we're going to do." You die, you leave it to your wife. Your wife dies, you leave it to your kids. And basically, it's it's simple. There's yeah. there's no real um, complications to it. But you know, if we're thinking about planning for the future, and you know, we're all Bitcoiners here. I'm presuming we're all whole coiners. If Bitcoin does what I think it does, like we're going to have intergenerational wealth just holding one Bitcoin, and all we've got to do is live to 2030. I think it'll be 10 million bucks US a coin. Now, if that's the case, all of a sudden that is a that is a substantial amount of money that you want to basically invest in the best possible will that you can, because from an asset protection perspective, a complicated will that has a testamentary trust could provide a whole heap of you know effectively asset protection capabilities for you. But then at the same time, that testamentary trust can also produce much better tax outcomes for you as well. And so when you think about it, you get a much better, well, you get flexibility and optionality when it comes to how you pay your tax when you have it in a testamentary trust. And you get a much better asset protection by having that testamentary trust that protects you from all sorts of potentially family family law situations. And what I often talk to clients about is um, it, it's typically not such a big deal about leaving it to your children if they are boys, but it really hits home when you think about what happens if you've worked your entire life to deliver basically you know, a, a future for your children or your girls and they marry the wrong bloke who steps in after three years and takes half of what you've worked your life for. Mm. like that is a big ugh. like you know all let's just say you know fast forward 20 years bitcoin's worth what we think it is and you know your daughter marries you know someone who you're not really happy with and you don't have these testamentary trusts set up you fall over she inherits you know tens of millions of bucks worth of bitcoin and you know he's a rat bag and he just walks out with half of your hard-earned that you've basically spent the last 20 years saving, toiling and shit talking about. <laughs> Stand <up. Stand laughs> humble and sucking, stacking stats, yeah. So, sorry, how is that different though for boys and girls? Like why couldn't... Um, oh, well, oh, usually there's an watch. emotional... Yeah, well, you can, but there's usually an emotional attachment to the girls you want to protect them as, as men. And, you know, there's the same outcome for the boys that, you know, but, you know, Usually most clients mm. think, oh, well, he's big enough, he's bad enough, that's a good lesson and what have you. But obviously you provide both, you know, the same yeah. outcome. But yeah. this is where, you know, having some forethought into it and and, and it, it's not it's not it's not cheap, but on a relative basis, it represents great value. So, you know, a simple will might cost somewhere between five hundred to a thousand dollars to deliver, but a you know, a, an estate plan with a testamentary trust and the rest of it might cost somewhere between two and a half to five thousand dollars. And it's like, oh, that seems like a lot of money. But you know, if you think about that's going to give you the best form of asset protection from any of those family law situations. Mm. You know, then it's it's a really cheap outcome. That's a you know, that's a layup. That's a no-brainer. And then when you overlay the tax benefits on top of it of having a testamentary trust with potentially a corporate beneficiary and with a testamentary trust, you can effectively flow through incomes to all of the beneficiaries to effectively reduce your taxable income as a group, mm. all of a sudden it's a really good outcome. Mm. 
when you're talking, what I, I I keep thinking of um, so I think I, I think it was Stefan um Stefan Levera who said you should think about your security of your Bitcoin as if the value of the Bitcoin was ten times higher than it is today because it's going to be. Hmm. I think yeah. it was Stefan. I don't know if it was, but credit. I think probably something that Stefan would say. So um, and I think that as you're talking, it seems to me that it seems exactly the same situation, right? Yes, okay, maybe today you're thinking this, but if we think three, four, five, six, seven years down the line, it might be a very different situation. So you might want to put and and also these 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 uh, thought processes are very individually individual circumstances dependent, right? So you might depending on your age, your health, you know, your your actual your marital status, all these kind of things will feed into your decision making. So everybody has to make that decision yeah. for themselves. But yeah, yeah, invest it. It's just again, it just goes back to long term, like. Long-term thinking versus short-term thinking, right? Do you think that because because we're all like kind of middle-aged men that we're thinking about this, right? But like you've got your twenty-year-old Bitcoiner, like young guy, whatever. Uh, It (laughs) wouldn't even be on their radar. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not. It's. It's. I think it comes with you know basically, you know, responsibilities in life. You know, you've got a partner. You've got presumably children. You know, when you start thinking about, hey, I need to provide for these children. What sort of legal frameworks can we use to deliver outcomes for them then you know i just think it's a stage of life because you know when i was young i didn't really give a give a hoot about it or think about it you know life insurance was probably not a big thing Mm. and then slowly as a family develops and you've got responsibilities you take on you know effectively a leadership role in the family and you're responsible for providing food on the table all of a sudden things like insurances and making sure that you've got all your finances straight whether it's you know if, if you were to pass away tomorrow, that's that's a big freaking deal for the family that you want to mm. make sure that you've you've provided the best possible outcomes for them. And this is where that's that's the one side of the legal framework that can produce outcomes. So you can get better tax outcomes, you can get better asset protection if you if you spend a little bit of time and money on you know the estate plan. Mm. And then on the flip side of that, the 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 other thing from a from an actual passing the asset on to clients, this is where I personally spend a huge amount of my personal time trying to deliver outcomes for clients that are going to ensure a smooth transition of their assets. And when I say assets, I'm really referring to Bitcoin because there's no real legal framework or state systems and processes set up to basically ensure the transfer of that digital bearer asset. And this is where, on a personal front, having a multi-seed collaborative custody arrangement set up for all of our clients is of enormous benefit. And we've been through multiple um, clients who have sadly passed away and ensured that they have had a smooth transition of that Bitcoin from the deceased through to their beneficiaries. And this is where I urge a lot of Bitcoiners, well, all Bitcoiners to think about what is your Bitcoin estate plan protocol? What are you fundamentally doing to ensure a smooth transition? And the comment we had before is, excuse me, you you can have nothing and hope that your estate or your beneficiaries can figure out, you know, the treasure map that you've left them to get their Bitcoin, (laughs) which I'm like, uh, I think some people, and I've spoken to a few Bitcoiners who would like to leave a treasure map for their kids to ensure that they earn the Bitcoin. We met a guy. What, can we tell the story? We do, don't say his name, but we did. Don't say his name. Yeah, first first Murrah, first Bush Bash, and he... Young guy. Yep. Nice guy. 
Glasgow. I, yeah. I don't could have know his name. I can't remember his name. But um, I do. Okay, well, don't say. But he had. Can we say we can say this? Can we? Yeah, we can. I think we can. Yeah. He was um he was literally going out into national parks, um and. Like taking G- GPS, G- geocaching kind of stuff, yeah. uh, locations within national parks, digging a hole, and li- literally, I mean, it was a literal treasure map. He was a pirate, basically. But he was also a yeah. guy that he said to us, "So have you guys got your final position?" Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" <laughs> yeah, no, no, you got your final. I would, yeah. Oh, I'll have my final position. No, no. <laughs> but yeah, blew me away. But did yeah, he was. He was doing exactly that. He was creating treasure maps and um, and leaving them for his non-existent children and grandchildren. Which yeah. was, and we uh, never saw him again. He never came. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he oh, lost I, it all. Maybe, he's, maybe he wasn't very good at maps. Maybe. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, Personally, I think there, there's some inherent problems with that. I wouldn't trust that putting coordinates into a GPS. Fuck no. 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 But, um, no. Thank you. But um, some rando with a metal detector. <laughs> you can imagine. Jesus. Yeah. You imagine yeah. so well, i quite like the idea of some guy it's things. cool i quite it's like the cool. some that, that metal detector guy getting it as well though um it'd be fun wouldn't it this well this is where a multi-sync basically solves that problem right you can leave you know one all over the place and you know if someone gets it then that's not a big issue you've got two others that you can fall back on yeah so yeah sorry your setup was like you you're holding a key clients holding the key and you got a third party holding the key um correct and, and do you actually do through go through like a tr- like any sort of training pro well, you obviously have with your client but like their son or daughter or you know grandchild or whatever do you ever do you actually speak to them already or uh, i have yeah i have and uh um, usually pretty well they're pretty excited that their parents or grandparents have got a bitcoin for them and they yeah, don't have yeah, to worry yeah. about it anymore they're usually pretty pretty stoked about that and then you know one of them well i've had one of them try and talk to me about some other stuff that they should be buying too and it's like yeah. Shut up! <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, this is where this is um, where you this is where you listen, Jim. <laughs> yeah. And um, to to tell a funny story, we had this um, we had a client who um, got very ill, thought they were going to pass away, and basically had the family contact us to ensure a smooth transition of uh, Bitcoin um, to to the children. And so we spent time talking to the kids and getting that all set up and ready to do, and then. <clears throat> um, and then they came good, or she came good, I should say, and um, came out of the drug haze. And I was speaking to her and said, oh, well, you know, we've spoken to your children and we're going to be transferring the Bitcoin <laughs> oh! to the... <laughs> and the response was, over my dead body, you are. Like, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's brilliant. I was like, oh, good, you're back. Okay, well, clearly, <laughs> clearly we're not doing that. But, you know, when things look really dire, there was maybe it was not understanding our processes or systems properly to to trust that happening mm. that they wanted to make that pass but like we've had clients literally lose hardware wallets seed phrases the whole bit everything that we've done for them and they've come in you know sheet white thinking that they've lost their bitcoin it's like no yeah you know you haven't lost your bitcoin this is why we do like we spend an inordinate amount of time basically getting clients set up on this process because I couldn't live with myself if we lost their Bitcoin. Sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this is, you know, I'm not going to send someone out there to go into a single single SIG wallet and, okay, walk out the door with, you know, whatever they've got on their wallet. I mean, I've, 
I'd be terrified. I'd be sick, yeah. sick to the stomach. And yeah. what what I'm very comfortable with the setup that we've got for clients is that we've got the ability for clients to have effectively full self-sovereignty and they've got built-in redundancies that give them <clears throat> geographically distributed keys, <clears throat> excuse me, and in a worst-case scenario, if they fuck up everything that we do for them, they don't lose their Bitcoin. Yeah, that's good. So after walking out of here, they can literally drop dead and we'll still get their Bitcoin to the to their beneficiaries for them. Yeah. And that's wildly yeah, the powerful. Peace of mind there is wonderful. Yeah. Peace of mind there is wonderful yeah. for both for you yeah. and for them. Um, yeah. one, one-on-one, you do that You do that sort of training piece one-on-one with them or do you do that as like multiple clients at the same time or how do you do that? Usually one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I can imagine a video. I can imagine like a video presentation. Hi, I'm Pete Dunworth. <laughs> like Troy McClure. <laughs> I'm Pete Dunworth. <laughs> you might have seen me in such things. As, you know, <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, no um, no chance of that. Quick question. Yeah. Your your business partner, is she on board as much as you? Uh, maybe not as deep down the rabbit hole as me, but Juliet's from a... She is a different generation. She's, you know, um, in her 60s. So, you know, I don't expect to, I'm in my 40s. Jules is in her 60s. Um, probably shouldn't say that on camera. Be, bleep mm, that out. I'd have guessed 30s. I'd have guessed 30s. Yep. And um, so so she has, um, I think, come on the journey with us. And because my brother's deep down the rabbit hole, Dad, by default, is down the rabbit hole because Mike and I are. Yep. And then just through osmosis, um, it's the only thing I want to talk to her about. No, that's yeah. that's a joke. But it, <laughs> she, she sort of come come a long way on that. And this is where, say, from a what's interesting from a from a say an asset allocation perspective, what we've done is um, across all assets, we don't like bonds. Uh, there's there's a lot we don't like at the moment, and we haven't allocated capital recently for a number of reasons obviously the economic turmoil and you know just the instability but one of the assets that we do like is alternative assets and that can can comprise of up to somewhere 20 to 25 percent of a client's investment allocation and if you look at the you know alternative assets what does that typically look like well that might look like infrastructure assets or wind farms solar farms um, all all types of different things and what I guess we've got comfortable with is allocating 50% of that alternative asset allocation to Bitcoin because we don't find, we can't find a better alternative asset than Bitcoin. It's a hedge on so many levels. Yeah. And the frustration is there's still 88, 87 and a half percent. What can I, I need to get it in, but yeah, I mean, you got to do your job. That's literally the problem, right? It's yeah. You got to do your job. Um, you spoke about your brother. Um, mm. Thinking about your brother and the, the 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 wonderful mind that is Michael Dunworth. So talking about time locking Bitcoin and seeing into the future, and, and we should have a chat with Michael. I just don't. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not ready for that. I'm not totally so sure what we bring to the table on that. So I think other people do that better than we can in some ways. But um, but just thinking about how people have in the past, rich people in the past who have managed to build build a lot of wealth. Um, and maybe left it to you know a, a library or a park or a university building or something like that, and that money feeds for many years to come. Is that something yeah. that could, could or is or maybe um, 
in the Bitcoin landscape where people go, well, okay, well, what's important to me is that I like my little village. I want that park to be maintained for people for a hundred years. Um, but I don't want to just hand the, you know, all of my wealth over to, you know, some my bro, my or my bratty kids, my bratty kids. <laughs> yeah, my bratty kids. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. so, but it kind of feed yeah. out, and you know, let's say, oh, I don't know, let's say you got a hundred Bitcoin, and you want to feed out slowly over a long, long time. Um, is that anything you've looked at? Yes, and oh. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. And what are they? What's their name and number? Deal. Yeah, it must be right because people want to have a legacy. The people <laughs> want that. Well, maybe they don't care about themselves. Some, some of it will be ego. Some of it will be they genuinely care. But, um, but yeah. yeah. So, what is? How does that go? I, I, I think if if we get me on to talking about time locking, Michael is the master at that. But I think from uh, an estate planning perspective, from an insuring legacy perspective, from insuring outcomes that you want to, you know, if you want to have a hand in the future and really, you know, push an agenda of what you want to do, then I look at time locking as effectively a, a whole new unlock for our society when it mm. comes to being able to shape the future and this yeah, is where what what is totally mind-blowing to me is is that we have got an asset in bitcoin and i don't really it's so much more than an asset but let's say it's an asset and you can literally time lock and send that to a destination in time in the future to unlock now I look at it on a multitude of different levels. If I look at it from a pension perspective, if a client comes to us and they've got 10 Bitcoin and they're, you know, call it 65, you know, I can basically schedule half a Bitcoin to basically land in their wallet every year for the next 20 years. That's a wildly powerful tool from a you know planning perspective, from a yeah. all sorts of things. And and the really interesting thing about this is, and this is where time locking really represents so many different possibilities that I don't think we've fully grasped. I'm still trying to get my head around it. I think, you know, from a pension perspective, I can basically say, you know, a client is literally going to receive half a Bitcoin for the next 20 years. And those 10 Bitcoins will basically come into their wallet. They'll spend it however they want. That That's not so big a deal from, say, a client perspective who's 65 years of old or years of age, I should say. But when you're, say, our age and you're thinking about time locking um, your your Bitcoin for your kids, you're like, well, the kids are, say, 10 years old at the moment. They're not going to know what to do in their 20s with a Bitcoin, so I'm not going to give them any Bitcoin in their 20s. So I'm going to lock this time, this Bitcoin away for 20 years before they get their first Bitcoin, and then hopefully they've made some mistakes along the way and learn to appreciate that Bitcoin that they get when they turn 30. Then they're going to get another one at 35. Yeah. All of a sudden, this is wildly, wildly different, and it's got huge implications for how we plan from a financial perspective for our future generations. And yeah, that's just that's just on the transfer of the asset and not even on the protection of the asset perspective. So, you know, that's how we transfer the asset into the future, which we can't do with any other asset, which is a big freaking deal. But from an asset protection point of view, um, you know, you time lock your Bitcoin and no one can touch it. Now, there are two types of time locking. You can do the time lock where you can basically rescind the time lock and get your Bitcoin back if you've got the private key. And then there's a time lock when you time lock it and it's locked until you, until that block height is reached. The block, yeah. and, and that's the type of time locking that Michael did with his Bitcoin mm. into the future, the 2144. So there are two types of time lock. I look at this and I think, well, from an asset protection perspective or 
and I had this conversation with Knut, which to me was mind-blowing. I called him up and I'm like, hey, let's chat about this stuff. I want to talk about time locking, blah, blah, blah. He goes, oh, yeah, I haven't looked at it for three years. I wrote an article. Of course you did. Like, <laughs> th- th- three years ago. <laughs> and he's that. like, oh, yeah, look it up somewhere. I still haven't looked it up, but, you know, he's... I'll find out. We don't belong. Yeah, <laughs> please. And, and and he said he wrote an article on it and I'll oh, shout out to Knut, actually. He's just released a like a consolidated a book of his oh, first yeah. two books. Yeah, and I, I just love that guy. So I'll so do a hard I. copy and <laughs> and uh, I'm hoping he can sign it at Bitcoin Alive when that comes up. So he's seen in Brando's boobs, I think. My bobs, your bobs. So excuse me. Touche. Yeah, yeah. And then get, so, you're gonna get a tattoo. Then then you could do that. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, I could. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I'm just. <laughs> he's uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. So I was having a chat to him and talking about time locking and um, you know, his book everything um divided by 21 million love that concept and mm. he talks about bitcoin being element zero and um talking about time like i'm like look it's really the ultimate form of cold storage because once it's in a time lock you can't touch it it's not in this wallet it's not in that wallet until that block height's reached so it's kind of like schrodinger's bitcoin just yeah, sitting yeah. in suspense yeah. and and he he goes oh my goodness I've just thought of something and I'm thinking, what is it, Knut? What genius are you going to impart on us? And he said, um, it's element zero at absolute zero. The absolute coldest temperature it can be is time locked uh, yeah. into the future. And yes. I'm like, that's really fucking cool because there is no way that you can steal it. Yeah. So when you time lock it for 10 years, it's like if someone comes around to do a $5 wrench attack on you and you're like, oh man, I just time locked that for 10 years. Like, Basically, get comfortable. The bed's over there. You're going to have to yeah. wait 10 years before <laughs> even I can access it. So, I am now thinking about how I can claim the minus 273 Celsius meme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute zero. Um, that would be good. Kelvin, zero Kelvin. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's 27th a meme there. of March. There's a meme in there. I'm March. stealing it. Say again. 27th of, Mar- 27th of March coming up. So 273. Of March. And he's all, yeah, of course, of course. Maybe. Well. To go within... To go with the eighth, uh, the twenty first of August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might offset good. that. Well, that's good too, right? Man, I, yeah. I struggle with a lot of this, believe it or not. But when Michael got up and spoke, right at at Marundi, I was probably the first ten minutes, fifteen minutes. I'm just like the jaw. Just no, no, not even that. I'm just like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? And then I don't know what yeah. it was. But something just like went bang. I went. Oh, yeah, and you know that meme, the, that, that. the slow motion brain yeah. explosion. I was just like, oh, just like gripping my seat, going, "Holy fuck!" That those yeah. those little moments you have, and in, in life, really, not just Bitcoin, but but particularly in Bitcoin yeah. right now, because it's so you know it's so new, so early. You can get them more regularly, obviously. So, but get with the. I mean, they're few and far between, but when they happen, they are special. They're really yeah. special. Yeah, that yeah. was that was one of those moments for me. And it's you'll not forget it either. You're not going to forget that for the rest. It's like a, it's like something you smelt when you were seven. The memory of it is not going to be there forever, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's funny on that time locking. Like, there's this is kind of complicated, but I'll I'll spend a few minutes talking about it because I think it's important. I think Bitcoin is our first quantum asset, and what I mean by that is it's our first quantum asset because it can basically be sent through to the future without affecting its quantum. You know, whether it's now or 10 days into the future or 100 years or 10 years in the future, it its quantum is not going to be affected. So you've effectively got a quantum proof 
asset that you can send into the future that you will know you will have a certain percentage of the Bitcoin network when you time lock it and send it to the future. Now, that represents the first time in history that that can actually be done. And I look at this and I think this has got huge implications from a financial uh, from, from a financial markets perspective. And that's the, the quantum asset in Bitcoin is only achievable when you look at the qualities that it's got in order to achieve that. So in order to get a quantum asset, you've got to start at the very beginning with a digital asset that has the ability to have an immutable ledger supply and issuance. It's got to have absolute scarcity. It's got to be seizure resistance. It's got to be censorship resistant. And then if you apply all those four things to a single asset, i.e. Bitcoin, that effectively, I believe, those four things can transcend what our three use cases of money are right now and effectively bring one asset to use across all three modalities of store of value, mean of exchange, unit of account. Mm. And I call that the first triple point asset. It can exist in all three states at the one time. And I'm not sure if we've talked about this, but there's a, a really interesting thing in thermodynamics with basically elements. Uh, under certain pressure and under certain temperatures, if you put water in a beaker, in room temperature, room pressure, it basically looks like a water of beaker, uh, sorry, a beaker of water. But if you put certain temperature and certain pressures on it, you can have ice, steam and water contained in the one beaker at the same time. Mm. And I'm like, that to me is completely mind-blowing. And this is where Bitcoin is the first triple-point asset that can achieve store of value, mean of exchange and unit of account all at the same time mm -hmm. because of those tech innovations that have happened with it. And then when you combine the first triple-point asset in Bitcoin with the ability to time lock it, all of a sudden you have the first quantum asset that you can send through into the future with these qualities. And this is where I'm like, like when I say stupid numbers, we can't even comprehend the value of this right now. This totally redefines the metric. This moves Bitcoin from being, you know, this moves literally human brain valuation on Bitcoin from a linear thinking to an exponential thinking. So, yeah, we don't even... We can't even come close to thinking about what that value of Bitcoin is going to be in the future when the rest of the world cottons on to the fact that this is the first triple point asset. What are your Christmas dinners like? It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> oh, um, they're usually pretty quick. Are they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We normally have a lunch. So I want to meet. Ah, your, I want to meet your lunches. dad. I want to meet your dad. Um, yeah. Is there someone in the Dunworth family that is so not on board? That like they just can't stand you guys. Uh, that's right. Oh, how how you think about it? I'm just going to say Jimmy Orman versus Mark Waugh. <laughs> um, arriving at this is cr cricket thing, right? You may have done of guys know about this. Arriving at the crease for his first ever England innings, he was met by the incredulous Mark Waugh, brother of Steve Waugh. He was my favourite cricketer, actually. There you go. Who took one look at him and said, "Look who it is." Mate, what are you doing out here? There's no way you're good enough to play for England. Ormond responded, maybe not, but at least I'm the best player in my family. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Pete. Uh, uh, that's so good. Well, I'm the Mark War of my family. <laughs> no, rubbish. Oh, absolutely. Man, I love this. I absolutely yeah. love this. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah Mike, the, the... Mike, Mike's a superstar, and I'm He's... just fortunate that nah, you know, he man. takes me along for the ride. It's both ways. Um, what's insult our guest? I did, I did, but I knew he could take it, so it's okay. Um, 
one thing I do concerns me does concern like let's say you have you know you're doing that and you want like somebody has a health event, right? Yep. You're going. Uh, I've got no, you know, I've I had I was a hundred, I had a hundred Bitcoin, and I've but I didn't want to push it on my 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 um benefactor, so I I didn't want to spoil their life, so I withheld it for them for a hundred years, or and left it for grandchildren and great grandchildren, and then there's a health event, and somebody really needs help, and what like oh, I see. that that has to be a consideration too, right? You need to build. There's there's loads of angles of this. Yeah, and and this is the beauty of you know planning. You you get to basically cut the cloth however you wish. That's it. There's a million ways to skin a cat, and you know if if you think, oh, I'm going to send um, all of my Bitcoin through to a you know a time lock Bitcoin into the future, a hundred yeah. years, I think you know that's madness. Like, I I really love the idea, and I'm trying to push it because I think it solves a lot of our issues in finance that we've got right now. If you think about Literally, if you think about what we've just gone through in the last week with those bonds blowing up and literally blowing a $40 billion hole in balance sheets, the reason why it's blowing a $40 billion hole in balance sheets is because there's a duration problem with the bonds. It's a duration, it's a liability mismatch on that. And this is where I look at, and I'm trying to basically think really hard on this, but if you can use Bitcoin as collateral on these bonds and time lock a portion of Bitcoin to these bonds, all of a sudden you can effectively solve duration risk of these bonds by using Bitcoin as collateral. That's what I look at. And I think when the when the financial world cottons on to what this is, is, you know, we there's a lot of people talking about underwriting government bonds with, you know, gold back to the tune of 5%. And I'm like, oh, big shit about gold. Like no one cares about it. And it's not really independently verifiable and mm. all sorts of other issues with it. And there's the real killer that's stopping us going onto a gold standard, I think, is the fact that you don't have a ledger that is run in unison with the gold standard. You've got a yeah. person standing in the middle creating the ledger, and that's the problem. That's why a gold standard fundamentally will never work while Bitcoin exists, because you've got the holy trinity of, of that whole monetary system. You've got the asset, you've got the store of value, you've got assured absolute scarcity you've got it verifiable and then you've got an immutable ledger where you can check on it hmm. and without the immutable ledger the gold standard falls apart um yeah can we time start that brendo because i'm gonna have to go and have a little bit of a thing in the light though you know <laughs> 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 um uh, where to go Pete, we can go, i think we're gonna go on all night um yeah, that's true. What are we on? Um, I think we will. Is there something that, you know, we're not asking you that you want to riff on? Yeah. Um, or nobody's at, whatever, just... Golf, you, maybe? Yeah, anything, mate. Anything yeah. you want to... Anything that you think is not out there in the in this sort of discussion that you want to put out there in discussion, go for it, mate. Okay. There, there are probably two or three things that I would love to sort of talk about. The the first is, and I've sort of looked around and tried to reach out to a few people, um, and this is something we've talked about, about creating a compelling and irrefutable argument as to why Bitcoin should move from being a multi-million dollar Bitcoin to a multi-billion dollar Bitcoin. And I just don't think we're looking at it the right way. And it's not that I'm trying to pump my own bags that I want Bitcoin to be a billion dollars. The real reason that I want, 
you know, Bitcoiners to start thinking in terms of Bitcoin should be ultimately billions of dollars of Bitcoin, not millions, mm-hmm. is because we moved the the Overton window of acceptable valuations from millions to billions. And we give all of the noobs who are entering the crypto space an opportunity to think that they are still early mm-hmm. to Bitcoin. And this is where I think in the last mm-hmm. in the last bull market, we didn't do a great job of selling Bitcoin Um <clears throat> And when I say selling Bitcoin, it's like, oh, it sells itself. Yeah, it does sell itself. But guess what? It's really fucking complicated to understand. So when someone says, hey, you can buy Cumrocket and it's going to go up 100x in a week, (laughs) it's like, okay, I'm going to go and do that. And it goes to zero and they get despondent and leave. And this is where I think if we've got a really compelling value proposition for Bitcoin or a valuation model to think about why Bitcoin should be in the billions, not millions, we can basically suck into this Bitcoin gravity well a whole host of noobs who are really, you know, really greedy, want to basically get into this space and understand it and want to buy a lottery ticket. And you know what happens when you get into this space, you come into it from a greed perspective and, you know, you want to make a difference for your family or get ahead financially and the rest of it. And then you slowly go down that rabbit hole and then your consciousness expands to actually wanting to do things for the broader community and basically be your best self. And this is where... Bitcoin, and we talked a little bit about this last episode. I want to thank you, Hats, for putting together that little metric on the Maslow's needs hierarchy that each halving that you're in basically moves you up that Maslow's needs hierarchy. And so I think a more compelling value proposition where we can get behind, and this is where I'm actively trying to um, engage people to tell me why this won't or why this is a, a wrong thing, when it comes to valuing it. And so I might just quickly riff on that. And then on the back of that, you know, what what I'm trying to do is basically from a demand side, create demand, and from a supply side, educate people to take control of their own Bitcoin and get that off exchange. And this is where, say, it's a method that I've used with all my clients. All my clients are basically self-custodied. They don't have any Bitcoin on exchange. And when we work on those two sides of the Bitcoin um, supply and demand, getting those Bitcoins off exchange will basically is the number one thing that we can do to help the price go up and actually see if this this theory is going to play out as I think it is. And this is where that that's the kind of stuff that excites me. And this is where, you know, we've had a model that we've looked after clients um, since 2016 in Bitcoin. And, you know, maybe two or three years ago, we've moved to complete self-custody. This is a model and a process that I know works that if someone out there is not comfortable to do it all themselves and get Bitcoin off themselves, then, you know, reach out to you or alternatively someone in the space that they know to do a effectively a collaborative collaborative multi-seat custody to get their Bitcoin off exchange. It basically serves all of our higher purpose. So they're probably the two things that I'd want to riff on. The um, If I can push back on that slightly and then say why I think I'm probably wrong, um, I wasn't comfortable when you went from million to billion, right? And the reason yeah. I wasn't the reason I wasn't comfortable is probably the opposite reason from what most people aren't comfortable. I wasn't comfortable because you didn't see everything, right? It's everything. It's everything divided by 21 million. And none of us have any comprehension of how big everything is. Yeah. Um it, it, it's fucking mind-blowing when you actually think about that. But and here's why I think. I'm wrong and you're right. Um, by putting the valuation 
whatever, however way you do it, right? For, for Greg Foss is a wonderful way of doing it. You know, gets it like two point one million a coin or something, right? But, mm. um, but he doesn't. I fully, I believe he understands this perfectly well. But what he's doing is putting a, using a, a methodology to create a number to put that number out there to put that into the conversation to then convince mm. people into so so actually like um being uh too what, what, what everything esoteric everything yeah absolutely yeah that's mm. exactly what i'm trying mm. to say. exactly so people don't resonate with that they resonate with a number and the number yeah. well, i'll the give number. you i'll give you an, i'll give you a number that i think is quantifiable now but ironically i actually think it's an ultra conservative number and i'll tell you how i get the methodology but the real methodology or the the methodology number two, I think is a much truer and correct way of thinking about valuing Bitcoin. But let's just look at valuation method number one, which is effectively a fair market value for Bitcoin. You know, I look at Bitcoin and I think just on fair market value, what should Bitcoin be valued at today? Well, in light of the absolute skullduggery and God knows whatever else is going on in traditional markets, I personally don't understand how anyone is comfortable using US dollars and and the rest of it if they had the knowledge that, say, we had. So I'll just put that as a precursor there. So at the moment, there's roughly uh, $6.3 trillion worth of global trade done on a daily basis. And I'm like, okay, so that needs to be denominated down into the number of Bitcoin that are going to be available um, on a daily basis to to produce a, a dollar per Bitcoin. And this is where I look at there's 900 Bitcoin produced or minted per day. And I think a fair and acceptable way of valuing Bitcoin today would be if everyone knew what I knew or believed in Bitcoin, we would have 6.3 trillion worth of global trade divided by 900 Bitcoin minted on the day. So that would give us a valuation at circa $7 billion a coin. It's far cry right from where we are now. I can bear yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and here's the funny thing. You look at that and you think, well, how do, how do you get to that? Like what, what, what needs to happen in order to do that? And you think, well, we have got a whole host of Bitcoiners who feel like us that they would never want to sell. And if you overlay a working credit market on top of our existing Bitcoin, along with a stable coin, you fundamentally never have to sell the Bitcoin that you're holding because it goes up forever. Mm literally and so then you you peel back well where is the demand coming from for people to hold this well for starters i could tell you that russia would like to hold 500 billion in their foreign reserves in bitcoin which is more than the entire market cap of bitcoin right now you know they had their foreign reserves just ripped up and stolen or technically not stolen they're just withheld so they don't have control over it so you may as well call it whatever you want but yeah. all of the you know the generosity that the US has given the Ukraine government in giving them a whole heap of you know billions and billions of dollars let me tell you those billions of dollars are probably going to be docked from the U- uh, from the Russian foreign reserves so i'm like there's 500 billion that could go into bitcoin tomorrow and there might be only 2 million liquid bitcoin that's one government having one issue what about china what about the US what about about Japan? What about the European Union? All of a sudden, we can wipe out all existing Bitcoin that are available, the whole 19 million, and then we're only operating with the Bitcoin that are minted on the day to fulfill daily trade. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have nation states competing for that Bitcoin minted on the day like Russia or Saudi Arabia or 
all of these oil producing nations that can basically mine Bitcoin for free because they get free energy or they'll just hold a gun to the oil producers' heads and say, hey, do that. And now you've got a maximum 900 Bitcoin to facilitate that, that 6.3 trillion of global trade. And they might actually want to save some. So 900 might be an overly conservative figure. There might only be 400 Bitcoin a day. And guess what happens in April next year? That number doubles again. So it's going to be, you know, 14 billion come May next year. And this is the world that we're working to, but we don't really quite comprehend what that means. So people think, well, if that's the case, then there's going to be more value than there is in the world holding, you know, basically held in Bitcoin. And it's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's just because why would you, yeah, why would you hold money in an inferior asset? Bitcoin's better than commercial property. It's better than bonds. It's better than, you know, cash. It's better than stocks. It's better than real estate, residential, commercial, industrial, you name it. And the thing is that most people don't really get their heads around. And this is where, you know, that's a conservative model for valuing Bitcoin on a daily basis, which has real numbers behind it. But where you get to really, really stupid numbers is when you look at, you know, from a from a um, from a logical point of view, if you have Bitcoin is the best store of value. It replaces gold. And you look at the two tech innovations that are going to instill that in society. You've basically got absolute scarcity, which gold will never have. It's verifiable, which is not really the tech innovation, but it is pretty cool. And you've got effectively um, <clears throat> uh, seizure resistance. That's a big freaking deal, which takes out the gold market of 10 trillion. And then you look at the technology as applied to the mean of exchange market, which is US dollars, which is $100 trillion. And you think, well, this is debatable, but I'll just go with it for, you know, for argument's sake here that Bitcoin's a better form of <clears throat> uh, mean of exchange than the US dollars, even though right now I don't objectively believe that. But let's just say it is. That mean of exchange is better than, or Bitcoin's better than the US dollar because you've got censorship resistance. So... You know, if you're Russia want to send a transaction, you can just log onto the network and send it and no one can stop you. That's another huge deal. Mm. And so that that takes that market out. And then the granddaddy of them all is what I think is, you know, the most boring of the three and no one really thinks about or gives any attention to. But to me, it's the most exciting because that's where all the juice is held is in the unit of account. And this is where it gets really boring really quickly, but just bear with me because this is where all the value is well, all the value is held is you've got circa two thousand trillion dollars worth of value tied up in double entry ledger systems accounting for all the value in the world right now. And we've got, you know, better than a double entry ledger system, we've got a triple entry ledger system that accounts for every single transaction that's on an immutable ledger with immutable supply and issuance. Like this is an accounting revolution that no one's talking about. And I'm like, this lets us never have a fuck up ever again from an accounting perspective. No one could just create stuff out of thin air. And what, what this fundamentally changes is, you know how they talk about basically the winner's right history. Yep. There is a record of every single thing that's happened on the blockchain and no one can rewrite that. That is that is a big, big freaking deal. And then... So when you look at the, the 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 step function improvements of each of those store of value mean of exchange unit of account, you've effectively got a super store of value. You've got a super mean of exchange, super unit of account. And this is for the first time in history, you have got 
basically three modalities of money competing for one asset. So you've got competitive tension across those three use cases competing for one asset. This has never happened before. So the logical way to think of this is you have, you, you know what happens at an auction when no one's there? Basically, it gets passed in for whatever the vendor basically said was the reserve price at auction, and you don't get a dollar more. Mm. But what happens when you've got two people there who really want that asset? All yep. of a sudden, you get you get an, a price appreciation way above the reserve. Auction and figure. my point, yeah. And my point being is, what happens when there's eight billion humans on Earth all vying and bidding on that single asset? And that's fundamentally where we get to. So rather than thinking about a linear accretion of value like that, it's really an exponential. Yes. You've got people who want it for, you know, a unit of account competing with people who want to store value in it. You've got people trying to make transactions with it. And it's just literally a free-for-all with 8 billion people basically bidding on this one asset because it's better than anything that's ever been that's or ever will be. got to be the most bullish fucking thing i've ever heard you fucking done worse yeah. I mean, and i look at this and i'm like i'm 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 willingly trying to get people to tell me where my thinking like where's the wrong thing in this and it's like hit me i'm 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 all for it like if you think the rationale of thinking is illogical or alternative there's no rationale for it i'd, I'd really like to debate this because moving the consciousness of Bitcoiners from thinking it's a million dollar asset to a billion dollar asset gives us a lot more confidence. It allows us to talk to people, I think, with more authority and it allows us to move the needle to a billion dollar asset. And effectively, what I'm trying to do is avoid newbies basically losing their money on shit coins yeah. by saying, hey, here's a billion dollar asset that you can buy today for 23,000 US dollars. You know, you've got a thousand or a ten thousand X return in front of you, and all you've got to do is buy it and hold it and secure it properly. So, yeah, I, I got nothing to say. No, I mean, the truth is going to write the history, and the normies aren't late. No, no, and no. I'll tell you who was, um, I think, a real inspiration in the last say, uh, six months in Bitcoin was Luke Broyles. I'm not sure if you've seen his mm -hmm. work, but mm -hmm. oh, I yeah. absolutely, I love his stuff. And You had the green running, had, right? Oh, uh, we, we had a chat to Luke. Uh, we actually had him in last Friday to talk to our clients, and he was fabulous. He did such a wonderful job, and I love the way his take on things. And I've had that discussion with him about, you know, Bitcoin needs to be an exponential valuation, not a linear valuation. And you know, he gets exponentials. You know, he gave a fabulous presentation. Um, if anyone out there is listening to this and wants someone to come and talk to their clients or have a chat to, like, Luke is absolutely fabulous. But, um, yeah, had a great conversation with him about exponential and, and and what that means for the Bitcoin valuation. And this is, you know, I'm, I just think it's a matter of time before we get this into the broader consciousness of Bitcoiners and and. I guess what we're trying to backfill or what I'm trying to backfill is, you know, give some substance and some rationale to Canute's everything divided by 21 million. Hmm. So what I love, Pete, is that um, the most bullish Bitcoiners I've found over the last eight years are the people who came to it with this, with the attitude of I'm willing to learn, but um, uh, here's a thousand questions and I want you to tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah. That's it. 
because yeah. because all because and yeah you've done it i've done it there's thousands of others have done it but the, yeah. we've all we all came we all came with the attitude hundreds of thousands of others probably and um, we've, we've all come with the attitude of no this won't work yeah and and picked it all the angles that we can think of but as a collective we've picked it thousands of angles yeah and then the most bullish bitcoiners of all are the ones who have done that work um yeah like you keep, like keep doing the work people keep putting the work in it is worth it it'll build your conviction massively yeah like this is where like you know i've been so fortunate to have mike as my brother like i'd, I'd speak to him well pretty much every day but you know usually the conversation would start with what have i missed here why what's stopping this thing going a million and then once it's at a million what stops it it's it's going to be you know and, and the only assumption i make in order to get to those stupid valuations is it just needs to keep making blocks mm, that's, it. that's it it's so simple it's like and and the problem i think we have as a community and and this is something that i'm overly conscious of and i think Greg Foss with his $2.1 million Bitcoin is a very good stepping stone, is that probably the first lesson we were given as children about money is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so when you talk about those, you know, wild valuations, that's why I want to talk about the framework for valuing it rather than stupid numbers like 7 billion or 20 billion or whatever it is yeah, per Bitcoin, yeah. because, you know, you immediately lock off a little you know, alarm in someone's head when you say, hey, it's a multi-billion dollar Bitcoin because, you know, we're so conditioned to thinking that if something is too good to be true, it's a, it's not. Mm. So you immediately dismiss it as a scam. So that's one of, I guess, one of the problems talking about, you know, large numbers. That's why I'd probably prefer talking about the, the valuation framework for coming up with why Bitcoin's an exponential and why it's a multiplier of those valuations uh, of those market caps across those different use cases of money. And then people can put in their own numbers to come up with the number that they want to, or they think's, you know, reasonable. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be lying awake with my eye, <clears throat> my eyes open tonight. I was yeah. like staring at the ceiling going, what the <laughs> fuck? No, it's good, isn't it? It's good. So um, good. We have so been, sorry, mate, go on. I, I was going to say, so the flip side of the demand side that we want to create is also, and this is something I do from a client perspective, is understanding that I think it's worth $7 billion today. Yeah. I want to have the most secure system possible in order to ensure the safety of that Bitcoin for clients. Mm. And this is way, you know, where we've used, uh, on a personal note, we've used uh, multi-sig collaborative custody with geographically distributed keys, multiple backups in multiple continents, um, we have found as the best, most effective way to store Bitcoin. And it's enabled us to recover, you know, potentially lost Bitcoin and and preserve all of those things that we find wonderful about Bitcoin. So the flip side of that is if anyone in the space doesn't or has their Bitcoin on exchange, reach out to literally anyone in the space to help them to get the Bitcoins off exchange. And, mm. you know, there's a host of people waiting to help. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, we have been pimping ourselves out a little bit for the Bitcoin Alive um, guys. I'm happy to do that. Really looking forward to seeing you down there, mate. But um, are you going to Beechworth? Yes, I am. I'm going to Beechworth and I'll be at Bitcoin Alive. So Wonderful. two fabulous events I'm really looking forward to. So I'm so excited. And I think, you know, what, what the boys have done with Bitcoin Alive 
I'm really excited about it. I think, you know, getting some international guests to come in and talk to us, it's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to the event. I'm looking forward to the day after. I think it's going to be a great weekend of just catching up with like-minded people. And um, I'm I'm just thrilled they're putting on the event. I want to do everything I can to support them and and make it a a success for them so that we can come back and do it again next year. And I I think it will be. I think it'll be, you know, first event and inaugural event is very difficult to get off the ground. So, you know, I'm thrilled that they've got Canuck coming to talk. And, you know, we talked about him tonight. He's just such a fabulous guy. I really want him. I, Brendo, I know you're into your music, but I'm not sure if you've seen his rendition of Fuck You Money. I have. Oh, in the um, cafe. I need to send you something. But go, anyway, go on. Yeah, I have. I have. It's great. Uh, yeah. I've. Was that with you? Uh, Were you there? No, but I... No. I I, I asked him, I said, hey, um, I messaged him. I said, hey, if I can organise a guitar, can we get a rendition of this live? And he said, yeah, so bring a guitar. Yeah, yeah, we're taking a guitar. I have to love a guitar. We're taking one down. So so we're staying um, with a few Bitcoiners, Daz being one of them, um, and nice. yeah, taking, a, taking a guitar down. So I've already, actually, I think I tweeted a, a jam home or something uh, at Canute. So, uh, yeah, very That's, keen. That'd be great. Um, yeah, love it, can't wait for it. But 24th, 25th, 26th of this month, so next weekend, is that? Um, Beachworth is that Beachworth? Our first, love, our first love is the Bitcoin Bush Bash. Yeah. So, please, yeah. everybody, Victorians, anybody who can get there, we're not going to get there this time, unfortunately. I'm sorry we're not there, but if you can get there, get there, go talk to Pete. Um, if you just need a little bit of an injection of bullishness. And, oh, um, fuck it, yeah. mate, where would is there anything you'd like? Is there is anywhere you'd like to send people or just want to come and chat to you at the, the events? Uh, good question. I think on Twitter it's at Dunworth underscore Peter. If you've got any questions or you need any help with any of what we've talked about tonight, happy to discuss any and all. And that's that's probably the most uh, the details I've got for now. I'm working on something that might be um, to market in the next month or two. So. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> we're going to continue this helpful. conversation off pod. Yes, <laughs> we're, and, but then we're also going to wait to count the, the new numbers on the latest on the latest podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. I could spend we could spend all night doing this, and um, we'll do it. Likewise, again. um, it's it's great fun. I appreciate uh, you guys doing this. It's uh, doing God's work over there. So oh, man, we love you. it. We love it. Um, see you on the I'll, golf. I'll see you on the golf see course, you on the mate. Golf course, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Can't wait. Thanks, buddy. Speak soon. Cheers, guys.